Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you have given us uh, to gather together around your word. And we ask for the grace of your spirit. That in this time, the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Uh, that he would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that truly understand, that truly sense and feel and drink in the truths we're going to talk about this morning. Pray for my own heart in this. Uh, I ask that you would speak through me the truths that you have been speaking into me this week. And just pray that you would give all of us a, a joyful time this morning around your word. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last Sunday, uh, I talked about the danger of being spiritually short-sighted, specifically when it comes to the sovereignty of God. We we talked about that ever-present danger of losing sight of the fact that that God is in control of every moment that comes into our life. And not only is he in control of every moment that comes into our life, but God is working all those moments together just to make our life difficult and hard. (laughs) No, he's working all those moments together for our good. He's working all those moments together for the good of his children. But the temptation is when, when the trials come, when the difficult moments arise, we start to panic, right? We start to freak out. We start to let anxiety and worry overwhelm us. We get more focused on, on the situation that's in front of us than on the God that is above us, that's taking all of those things and working them together for our good. So, so we get short-sighted and we lose sight of the, we lose focus on the fact that God is really in control. But, but that's not the only area in our lives where we battle spiritual short-sightedness. That's not the only area that we battle spiritual short-sightedness. Another spiritual reality that it is really easy to lose sight of, especially in the everyday moments of life, is the reality of the gospel. We can lose sight of the gospel. Now, now by that, I don't mean that all of a sudden you forget that you're saved, or all of a sudden you forget the facts of the gospel. What I mean is that it's easy for us to lose sight in those everyday moments of life. It's easy for us to lose sight of the ramifications of the gospel. It's easy for us to lose sight of the ramifications of the gospel. So I want to give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about with that, of, of losing our focus on the gospel, losing sight of the ramifications of the gospel to help you understand this, this spiritual short-sightedness that we battle with. Uh, one of the ways you can know that you're losing your focus on the gospel is when you start to get more and more comfortable with what I'll call a self-righteous pride. A self-righteous pride. You know what I mean? I mean, I mean that pride that says, did you hear what so-and-so did? Did you hear what they did? I can't believe that they did that. And then what we follow that with? I would never do that. It's a self-righteous pride that looks down in a condemning way. It looks down on others in, in their struggles, in their sin, and it looks down with a, with a self-righteous smugness. I can't believe they did that. I would never do that. And, and such an attitude, when that, that's in our hearts and we start to get comfortable with that, we've lost sight of the gospel. We've lost sight of the gospel. You see, the gospel is a killer of self-righteous pride. The gospel is a killer of self-righteous pride. How does it do that? Well, the gospel leads me to the cross calls me to look upon the cross and see the reality, the cost of my sin. Amen? The gospel leads me to the cross and says, look at the cost of your sin. And what did my sin cost? You want to know how bad a sinner Ryan is? Just look at the cross. What did my sin cost? What did it cost to save me? 
It cost the life of the sinless son of God. That's how bad I was. That's how bad I am. That's what it cost to save me. Here, here's a passage, and you can just jot this down. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 19. Peter writes this. 1 Peter 1, 17 to 19. He says, If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, if you call on him on the, the assumption is what? You do, right? If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear. And the idea there is godly humility. Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, your time on this earth, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, pretty valuable things, aren't they? But he says, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but you were ransomed. Here's the cost with what? You remember the passage? With the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. You see, the gospel calls me to think about the cost of my redemption. And when I do, when I do, when I realize the cost that, it, that was paid to save me, how could I then look down on somebody else? Amen? How could I then look down on somebody else and say, well, I'm better than they are. I, I'm more righteous than they are. How could I do that when I realize how bad a sinner I am? The cost that was paid to save me. So when I get comfortable with that attitude of self-righteous pride, it reveals that I've lost sight of something. Amen? I've lost sight of my focus on the gospel. Let me share another one of these symptoms of gospel short-sightedness with you. Let's talk for a moment about a misplaced hope. Misplaced hope, especially in our culture, in our affluent culture. It becomes easy for us to start living like this life, like this world is all that there is. Amen? It becomes easy, right, to start living that way. We start living for our jobs. We start living for our stuff. We start living for our relationships. We start living like it's those things which are providing our hope. Amen? Let's have a moment of confession here, right? Ever find that you you get into that? Like, that's where my hope is. My hope is in my job. My hope is in my stuff. My hope is in my relationships. But brothers and sisters, that is such a dangerous way to live. Why do I say that? Because none of those things are worthy objects of your hope. (laughs) None of those things are worthy objects of your hope. None of those things are secure enough for your hope. Guess what? People lose jobs. You know that? (laughs) We all know that. People lose jobs. And our stuff, what happens to our stuff? It breaks, it gets old, or it gets trumped by newer and better stuff, right? I don't want that phone anymore because i got to have the new phone, right? What about our relationships? Those ever have struggles and difficulties? Yeah, sometimes those relationships go south. They go south, especially when, when, we, when we suffocate the other person because we've made the other person our everything, Right? We've started to put all our hope, all our expectations in them. And we suffocate them with that. So none of those things are worthy objects of our hope. That's why the Bible tells us, here I'll give you another passage to jot down this morning. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, it says this. If then you've been raised with Christ, and again, the assumption is what? You have. You've been united with Christ through faith. You've died with him and you've been raised up with him. If then you've been raised with Christ, Paul says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, and listen to this, I love this. When Christ, who is your life, is your life your job? 
Is your life your stuff? Is your life your relationships? When Christ, who is your life, is, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Earlier in that same letter, Paul called this the hope laid up for you in heaven. The hope laid up for you in heaven. You see, the gospel gives us the only sure hope. Amen? The gospel gives us the only sure hope. It's only through the gospel that we find that hope that will not disappoint us. It is a hope in life as it should be, life in fellowship with God, the life that that we were made for. Amen? We were made for that life. And that's only found through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But again, how easy it is to lose sight of that, to start fixing our hope, our, our attention, our affections on the things of this world. I'm going to give you one more area this morning, one more way this gospel short-sightedness manifests itself. And I'll call this one a self-righteous discouragement. Self-righteous discouragement. There are some, especially in churches, who are constantly beating themselves up over their failure. There are some who are constantly beating themselves up over their failure. They are working. You see them. They're working so hard to try to gain God's favor. They want to be the, the good little boys and girls, so to speak. They're working so hard to try to gain God's favor. But, but as they keep falling short of achieving that righteousness in their own power and their own efforts, what happens? They keep getting so discouraged, so disappointed. And you see them, they, they weep and they mourn over their sin and they look around at others who, in their opinion, are doing everything so much better than them. And they get so discouraged. And they fall into this trap of pinning all of their hopes on their own self-righteousness, you know? Their own ability and their own power to try to please God. And they keep finding themselves disappointed by their own ability. I was thinking about this, and I remember a few years ago, I was in this, this parenting class, this class for young parents. And as the class discussion unfolded in one of our gatherings, I witnessed several of the, the young moms expressing their feeling of being utter failures. I mean, it was just kind of like we're going around the room and it was mom after mom kind of sharing this feeling of just feeling like a failure. And, and they had built up such a high expectation of what a Christian mom was supposed to be. And it was funny, as we went around, it's like each mom thought every other mom was doing it perfectly, but them, but them. And, and at the heart of the struggle as I began to listen to them, uh, was this feeling of being a failure, not, not just in comparison with other moms or, or for the children, but they viewed themselves as a failure before God. They viewed themselves as a failure before God. They thought of God as their judge, looking down on them and condemning them for how they weren't measuring up as a mom. And again, I remember listening to that discussion, and then I remember having the blessing of encouraging those moms to look to the gospel. Look to the gospel. Look to the gospel because the gospel says What? Keep working harder. You're not measuring up. The gospel says what? You are loved, you are accepted, and it is finished. Amen? That's what the gospel says. You don't have to work for the favor of God because it's already given you freely in Christ. As Christ, you are completely and fully accepted. Do we struggle with that? Do we struggle with that in those moments when we do feel like failure? Can I get an amen on that one? Struggle with that. We struggle with that. But that's the gospel. You are fully and completely accepted, not because of you, but because of Christ. Amen? Because of Christ. That's why Paul says, I love this. This is Romans chapter 5. Another reference for you to jot down. Romans chapter 5, first two verses. Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained, and I love this, access by faith into this grace in which we stand. What's that picture of? It's, it's this is where you are. You're, you're not kind of outside of the grace of God trying to work your way into it. This is where he has put you. By faith, you have received access into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We have peace with God. We, have, we stand in his grace, not by working our spiritual fingers to the bone, but simply by resting in Christ. It's about taking your faith off of your own efforts and just resting in the efforts of Jesus. But again, it is so easy, so easy to lose sight of that. We get so short-sighted. We get focused on our own efforts. We get focused on the efforts of others. And we get focused on the things in the world around us instead of saying focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth is that our daily life affords us a myriad of opportunities to lose sight of the realities of the gospel. Our daily lives afford us a myriad of opportunities to lose sight of the realities of the gospel. But this morning, what I want to do is draw your attention. I'm very excited about being able to do this this morning. I want to draw your attention to a gift, to a blessing that our Lord Jesus has given us to help draw our attention back to the realities of the gospel. A gift that the Lord Jesus has given us to help draw our attention back to the realities of the gospel. This morning, I want to show you one of the blessings Jesus gave us to help us overcome gospel short-sightedness. A gift Jesus gave us to help us overcome gospel short-sightedness. So take your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. This is now our third Sunday in Mark 14. And as I've mentioned previously, we are entering some dark days. Some dark days in the Gospel of Mark. We have now come to the Passion narrative in Mark's Gospel, and we are approaching the crucifixion of Jesus. But before Mark walks us through that scene, before we see the trial and the condemnation and, and the brutality that leads up to the moment of the crucifixion, Mark unfolds for us the abandonment of Jesus. That, that's really the main theme here in chapter 14. Uh, by the end of this chapter, we will see all of the disciples leave Jesus. Jesus will be abandoned by all of his men. And thus far in our study of Mark 14, uh, Mark has been setting us up for that event. He's shown us the religious leaders in their plot to kill Jesus. And then he showed us Judas, step forward. Judas, one of the, the 12 closest there to Jesus. And Judas stepped forward and agreed to help them in their plot. And again, remember we talked about that. It wasn't that they sought out Judas. It was that Judas took the initiative on his own. He said, I'm, I'm cutting my losses and I'm going to turn on him. And I'm going to go and help these men out in their murderous plot. That's what we've seen thus far, but it's not till the darkness of the Garden of Gethsemane that we're going to see the mass exodus of Jesus' disciples. There, when we come to Gethsemane, and the religious leaders and Judas arrive, and they reveal their plot, and, and they arrest Jesus, and then we will see all the disciples scatter, and Jesus will enter the crucible of chapter 15 all by himself, all alone. And, and that abandonment that happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's right around the corner. However, before we get there... Mark has invited us to a meal, a meal that Jesus is having with his disciples. Mark is here in the text walking us through the last Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. And we began looking at that scene last week. And I explained last week that the Passover meal was a picture, but it was a picture that was passing away. It was a picture that was passing away. The Passover meal was a memorial meal celebrated 
every year by the Jewish people. It was celebrating, it was a meal to celebrate the, the deliverance from their bondage in Egypt. If you remember back in Exodus, God unleashed ten plagues on the Egyptians and, uh, to rescue his people from their slavery to the Egyptians. And you remember the tenth plague? What was the tenth plague? It was the worst of all of them. Yeah, it was the death of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn of every family and even the livestock there in Egypt. But God, in his grace, he spared his people of that judgment. And he spared them through, he, he called them to, to take a one-year-old male lamb, sacrifice that lamb, and place the blood where? Remember? On the doorposts and the lentil. And then they were to take that lamb and they were to roast it and eat it with, along with other food that night as God's judgment then passed over those houses. Well, every year since that time, the Jewish people repeated that ceremony. They repeated that meal. And they did so to remember that God spared them. He spared them his judgment through the blood of a lamb. But as I explained last week, the Passover meal wasn't just a meal that, that looked back upon God's deliverance. It was also a preview, right? It was also a foreshadowing of the deliverance to come. As the New Testament makes clear, the Passover meal wasn't just looking back. It was looking forward. Again, it was a foreshadowing of the ultimate deliverance to come through whom? Through Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb. And here in our text, really, in, and you think about this, in irony of ironies, Mark shows us the true Passover lamb on the eve of his sacrifice, right, as he's going to be sacrificed for our sins, doing what? Celebrating that picture, right? Celebrating that memorial meal with his disciples. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's, again, the power of the way God's word works out. Again, you look at it and you go, irony of ironies here. Here is the Passover lamb celebrating with his disciples on the eve of his sacrifice. This memorial meal that points to him, points to that very act. And that's what we have here in our text. But as Jesus celebrates the Passover meal, as he celebrates this picture that really is about to be fulfilled, this picture that is passing away now because the fulfillment has come, Mark shows us that Jesus gives his disciples a new picture. He gives us a new picture. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's, let's read through our text for this morning. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 22. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 22. And as they, Jesus and his disciples, were eating, he took bread... And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Think about what we're seeing here. Here Mark shows us the very first instance, the institution of the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. This is the very first, if you were, communion service that was ever celebrated. And, and as we look at this text for this morning, what I want you to realize is that, I want you to see the context here. Because here, on the eve of the darkest moment that these men will walk through, the abandonment and crucifixion of Jesus, he gives them a picture to encourage their hearts. He gives them a picture to encourage them, their hearts. He gives a new gospel picture to encourage their hearts and really to encourage the hearts of all of the disciples to follow them, including who? Us, amen? Including us. And so what I'm praying that we understand this morning is that the Lord's table is a gift given by Jesus to strengthen and encourage the faith of his people. The Lord's table 
is a gift given by Jesus to strengthen and encourage the faith of his people. It is a visible, tangible, powerful, repeated declaration of gospel realities. Gospel realities. It is a gift given to help us overcome our gospel short-sightedness. We need to realize that, that the Lord's table was never intended to be some, some empty, shallow ceremony that we just walk through. It was never intended to be some, some hollow ritual. It is instead, and I really want you to think of it this way as we talk about this this morning, it is instead an invitation to come and feed. To come and feed. To feed at the table. To feed our weary and worn out hearts on the truths of the gospel. That's what it is. It's not an empty ceremony. It's not just something we do because we're at church and it's that Sunday. It is an invitation, a gift given by our Lord Jesus. Come and feed, come and feed, because I know you are weary. I know you are worn out. I know you are overcome by all of the guilt, all the things that you're dealing with. So come and feed on the truths of the gospel. The Lord's table is a place where we feed on gospel truth. I want to show you this this morning. The first thing I want you to note about our text for this morning, this might seem a little strange, but there isn't much here. There isn't much here. Mark gives us a very minimalistic text, especially when you compare it to the details that we find in some of the other texts that speak about the Lord's table, especially when you compare it to the details uh, from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's normally the text that we read on communion Sundays. And there, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is writing to, to address uh, the abuses uh, in that church in regards to the Lord's table. Remember, the church in Corinth was having all kinds of problems. And when they were coming to the Lord's table, when they were gathering in their houses on the Lord's table, it was getting so bad that some people were getting drunk. Some people were being excluded. It was, it was, a, it was a mess. They were not taking it in the way the Lord intended. So, so Paul writes to uh, help correct them. But, but here in our text, absent from Mark are Jesus' words, to do this in remembrance of me. Those, those are found in Luke's parallel. Those are found in the Apostle Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians. Also absent is Matthew's description that the blood of the covenant poured out for many was for the forgiveness of sins. Mark doesn't speak, take the time to spell that out here. So my question as I've been studying this is, why doesn't Mark? Why, why so brief, Mark? Why, why so minimalistic? I mean, think about this. We just walked through, last week, we just walked through this scene in which Mark described for us this, this lengthy errand that Jesus sent his disciples on. Remember that last week? And Mark gave us all kinds of details, right? He said to the disciples, okay, go find this guy with the water jar and then follow him here and go to this house and ask for this guy. And he gave us all of those details last week. So why give us all of those details about that errand? But when it comes to this crucial moment, really, in the history and life of the church. Why give us so few details? Well, I think part of it is found in who Mark is writing for. Who Mark is writing for. He is writing for those in the early church who were becoming Christians or those who were Christians who were now suffering as they had embraced the gospel. This is, the church was in a difficult time. Those, those who received the, the Mark's gospel when he first wrote it. They were going through persecution. It was a difficult time to be a Christian. And, and all of those people 
that Mark is writing to, most likely they would have been a part of, of churches, of local churches. In, in those churches, communion, the Lord's table, would have been regularly celebrated. So this, what we're seeing here, would have been something familiar to them. It's not the first time they've ever heard of this. This would have been something familiar to them that they practice regularly. So it would have been familiar to them like it is familiar to most of us. So I think Mark isn't writing here necessarily to explain this event. Again, they would have already known about this event. Instead, I believe that Mark is writing to show us this event, and I'll put it this way, this event as an anchor in the midst of a sea of turmoil as an anchor in the midst of a sea of turmoil. He is writing to show that the Lord gave this beautiful picture to a people in the midst of the the darkest of days and most difficult of hours. Again, what are we on the the verge of here in the Gospel of Mark, right? We're on the verge of all the disciples turning away from Jesus. We're on the verge of Jesus going to his trial and his condemnation, the brutality that leads to the... We're on the verge of the darkest of days. And in that, Mark shows us Jesus giving his people this gift. And, and what I find fascinating as I was thinking about this is that Jesus didn't wait till, to give this picture until after the cross. I mean, I was thinking, that's, that's maybe the way I would have done it. I would have done everything and then give a picture to help you remember everything, right? That's the way we would. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't wait till after the cross. He doesn't wait till after the resurrection. He doesn't wait till the, the glory of their salvation has fully been uh, revealed. He gives it to them before. He gives it to them as they walk into the darkest hours of their life. And I think that's a very important message for Mark's readers, those early Christians who were facing persecution for their faith. And I think it's an important lesson for us, lesson for us as well. Jesus has given us this glorious gospel picture this gospel feast, to sustain us, even in the darkest of times. Even the, and what I want you to grab a hold of with this is that gathering around the Lord's table isn't for when everything is going great, when everything in life is perfect, as it should be. Instead, gathering together around the Lord's table, the Lord's table is a place for weak and weary and discouraged and broken sinners to come and find encouragement and strength. Isn't that beautiful? When you realize that? Because sometimes, what do we say? I don't know if I can come to church. They're going to do communion, and I just don't feel. You know? Anybody ever said that? You don't have to raise your hand. Anybody ever thought that or said that? But you understand, that's what this is for. And the way Mark presents it to us here, right in the midst of all this difficulty and trial, before they walk into that, Jesus gives them this this anchor, this gospel feast, going into these dark times. So I think that's why Mark is so minimalistic here. But now let's look at the details that Mark does give us. In Mark 14, verse 22, he tells us that as they were eating, he, Jesus, took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them. Now now remember, they, they are partaking of the Passover meal. That's what's going on here. And as explained last Sunday, there were four parts to the Passover meal. Each part concluded with the drinking of a, a cup of wine. Uh, the meal began with the head of the household, the father pronouncing a blessing, a benediction on everybody that was gathered there in the home to celebrate the Passover meal. That was the first part. And then the second part, and I love this part, one of the children, one of the children would ask, why is this night different from other nights? Isn't that beautiful? Why is this night different? And the father would go on to exp- tell the story of that first Passover and the Exodus. So it was a teaching moment. So that was the second part. After that, they would drink another cup of wine. 
And then the third part uh, was the eating of the Passover meal itself. And during this time, the father would bless the food. And then he would explain how each part of the meal, the, uh, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, the greens, the stewed fruit, and the roasted lamb, how each part of it symbolized an aspect uh, of Israel's exodus and their time in the wilderness. And that time of enjoying the meal, that lasted all the way till midnight. And then at midnight, they would sing some psalms, so those psalms that I was reading from this morning, the Hillel psalms, they would sing from that, and they would drink that last cup of wine, and that would be the end of the Passover meal. Now, in our text for this morning, Jesus and his disciples, they're in the third part. They're, they're together now eating the meal. They're in the third part. And during that time, Jesus takes some of the unleavened bread that would, again, have been normal at the Passover meal, and he prays over it, and he breaks the flat pieces uh, up, and he hands them out to his disciples. And as he does so, he lets them know of a new picture they are to see in the bread. And again, just kind of want you to get your mind into this, and it would have been normal to explain, okay, this is what the bread, and this is what the, the herbs, these what these things represent. But as Jesus breaks the bread and he hands it out, he wants his disciples to see a new picture. They are to see the picture of a life given for them. That's what they are to see. He says in the end of verse 22, look at it. Take, this is my body. This is my body. They are to see this bread as a symbol, a picture of what he offers them. He offers them his very self, his life. But as I was thinking about this, I was asking the question, why use the bread to communicate this? Uh, We talked about last week that the the Passover lamb was a picture of who? Of Christ, right? And the blood from the Passover lamb was put on the doorposts and the lentils, and it's a picture of Christ dying on the cross. So, so why not offer the disciples at this moment the roasted lamb and say, take, this is my body? Well, I think the answer to that is found in the way that they culturally viewed bread, the way that they viewed bread. This is from New Testament scholar James Painter. Listen to what he says. In biblical times... Bread was the staple food. Bread was the staple food. It was a synonym for food itself and even the symbol for that which in any way might sustain life. It was everything. Bread was life. It was the basic, the foundation, the the essential element in daily sustenance. And that's why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, what? Pray, give us this day our daily, daily bread. Give us not just some good bread for today, Give us that which we need today to sustain us. So bread was life. Bread was sustenance. The the importance of bread is actually stressed throughout the scriptures. When the children of Israel were in the wilderness, God provided them with manna, which they called bread from heaven. That's that which sustains us. In the tabernacle, in the temple, you had the show bread placed before the Lord. And you remember the, the story of David and his men? They were so hungry, and then they came in, and it's only for the priests to eat, but... David and his men ate that because what did they need? They need sustenance. They need that which will help them survive. And and as we've walked through the Gospel of Mark, we've watched Jesus on more than one occasion miraculously provide bread for thousands of people. Remember back in Mark's chapter 6, Jesus took five loaves of bread and he multiplied them to feed over 5,000 people, 5,000 men, plus women and children. Then in chapter 8, we saw him do it again. There Mark tells us that Jesus multiplied seven loaves and fed 4,000 people. And neither of those events was, were about Jesus just letting, well, I just want them to have some really good bread for free. That's what those, that was not what those events were about. What were those events about? 
those events were about Jesus showing that he could provide the sustenance that people need and he could provide it in abundance, right? He could provide it in abundance. And not simply physical sustenance, but true life. That's why Jesus says over in John's gospel, chapter 6, I am the bread of life. And remember, he goes on in that text to say, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And, and that's the picture that the, Jesus is showing his disciples here. That's the picture that Jesus is showing his disciples here. He tells them that this bread is a picture, a representation of his body. This is my body, he says. But another question, what does that mean? Is Jesus talking about flesh and blood? Is he talking just about bones and joints and ligaments, about material substance? Well, I think commentator James Edwards helps here. He gives us this insightful comment. He explains that, listen to this, the Aramaic, which was Jesus' native tongue, behind the word body, it likely meant more than just physical body. It likely meant my person, my whole being, myself. My whole being, myself. That's what Jesus is giving for his disciples. That's what he's given for all of us, right? His whole self. His whole self. That's why he tells the disciples, take. This is my body. Take. This is my body. Think about that, that language there. I love that, that word, that command. Take. It's very, very blunt, right? Take. Take. Why do you need to take it? Because you need it. Take. You need this. Take. This is me. You need this. You need me. You need me. That's what Jesus is saying. He's showing his men and he's showing, saying to all of us that the sustenance that we need is what? Or better said, who? It's him. He is the sustenance that we need. The sustenance that we need is Christ's life in our place. Christ's life in our place. Again, Mark is very minimalistic here in the text. He, he simply says, take, this is my body. However, over in, in Luke and his parallel, and again in 1 Corinthians 11 when the apostle Paul writes about the Lord's table, they give us a more po- full picture of what Jesus is saying to his disciples. They record for us that Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. It's for you. It's in your place. That's the idea. Jesus gave his sinless life in the place of our sinful ones. He gave his sinless life in the place of our sinful ones. He was the spotless lamb of God offered as the sacrifice for the sinful people of God. That's why Paul writes, and there's another text to jot down, 2 Corinthians 5.21. I love this. For our sake, for our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin. Why? Why view him as sin? Because our sin was placed upon him. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's this great exchange, right? Our sin is placed upon him, and his righteousness is given to who? Is given to us. Is given to us. You see, every sinless moment, every act of obedience, every pure thought, every selfless action of Jesus was offered up. His whole being as a spotless lamb, our perfect sacrifice, given in the place of our sinful lives. So Jesus says what? Take. Eat this. This represents my body, my life given for you. And I want you to feed on it. I want you to feed on it. Now, now there are some who teach that the bread and the cup actually change. They teach that there is something 
metaphysical happening and they become the literal body and the literal blood of Jesus. But look at our text. Is that what we see happening here? No, that's not what we see happening here. Nothing happens in this text to the physical body and the physical blood of Jesus. As he sits there with his disciples, this first Lord's table, there aren't pieces. Well, this is graphic, but there aren't pieces missing out of Jesus, right? There's nothing happening to his physical body, his physical blood. And the reason that nothing metaphysical happens to the bread or the cup that they're drinking is because Jesus is simply giving his disciples a picture, a symbol of spiritual realities. Just like with, with the Passover meal, with, with the bread, with the bitter herbs, with the roasted lamb. Those things were pictures of spiritual realities. And Jesus takes that meal, that Passover meal, and then brings in this new picture. And so he does the same thing that they did with the Passover meal. He does it with the Lord's table. He takes the bread and the cup and uses them as pictures of spiritual realities. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture for all of Jesus' disciples. And in the spread, we see a picture of the life that will sustain us. The life that will sustain us. Jesus puts before his disciples and before all of us a picture of what we truly need to sustain us. We need the life of Jesus in our place. That's what we need. We, we need to rest. And please hear this. We need to rest in his sinless life. Instead of placing all of our hope in our own efforts and our own accomplishments, We need to see his righteousness, not our own, as our daily bread. Our daily bread, our daily meal to bring us peace and comfort and rest. Let me ask this question. Do you find at times that you go to your own efforts? This is how I'm doing it. Or this is how other people look at me. And that's what you try to feed yourself on. Anybody want to confess to that? But that's not what we need. Let me ask this question. How is that working for you? You know, we end up so discouraged, so distraught, so much feeling like a failure. Or we end up arrogant and boastful and proud, looking down on other people. Because we're trying to feed on us. Jesus says, that's not what you need. That's empty. That's not going to satisfy your soul. You need to feed on Christ and what he has done for you. And so at the table... At the table, the bread is the visible, tangible picture that declares to us, take and feed on the life of Christ. Take and feed on the life of Christ. Find your nourishment, brothers and sisters, in the life that he lived for you, the life that he lived and the death that he died for you. Stop trying to feed on who you are and what you can do. And instead, feed on who Christ is for you. Visible, tangible, repeated reminder of that at the table. And we find the same picture in the cup. Here, here we find a picture of the payment made for us. The payment made for us. Look at verses 23 and 24. There we read, And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. First thing I want you to note here is that Mark says that Jesus blessed the cup. He prayed over it. Then he gave it to his disciples. And look at the word. They, how many? They all drank of it. Now, a question to be raised here is who is included in the all? Where I'm going with this is, was Judas included in the all? We we do know that he was there when the meal started, uh, but scholars debate whether he was still there present at this time. 
And the disagreement comes from the fact that John, in his description of that evening, John chapter 14 through 17, that picture of what was going on (coughs) in the upper room that night, it it describes things as though Judas had already left when it came to this point. However, the way Luke tells it, uh, he describes Judas leaving after this particular point. So was he there or had he already gone? And honestly, I'm not sure that we can say one way or the other. My particular leaning is with John's chronology, and I think Judas was gone, and I think there's reasons that Luke arranges things the way he does. But again, it's really hard to say. However, what I think we can say, and the point that I think Mark is making by the use of this word all, is this. There were a bunch of failures at the first Lord's Supper. Can you handle that? There were a bunch of failures. Oftentimes we think of the apostles and we think, oh, you know, these great and glorious guys, right? But there were a bunch of failures at the first Lord's table. There were a bunch of failures there. And I think Mark is leading us to see that with his use of the word all. He uses it here in saying that they they all drank of it. And then he uses it four more times in this chapter to describe the disciples. And I just want to walk through this so you can see where I think Mark is leading us with his use of the word all. Look first at verse 27. Look down at verse 27. There Jesus tells his disciples, tells all of them, you will, what does he say? You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So how many persevered through that dark night? How many stuck right by his side through that night? Not a one. Not a one of them. They will all abandon Jesus. But as the apostle Peter hears this, He's going to disagree with Jesus' prediction. That really surprises us with the Apostle Peter. (laughs) Look at verse 29. Peter said to them, or said to him, Even though they all fall away, what? I will not. Any kind of self-righteous pride going on there in Peter? Yeah, all of them might disappoint you, but not me. I'm different from all of them. I'm, I'm better than the all. But then Jesus goes on to explain to him, remember? And we'll look about the, at this more in a few weeks. He goes on to explain to Peter in detail how, indeed, Peter will deny Jesus. But Peter still objects. Look at verse 31. But he said emphatically, if I must, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they, what? They all said the same thing. It wasn't just Peter. Every single one of them to a man was saying, even if we have to die with you, we're going to stick right by your side. But what did they all do? Look down at verse 50. And they, what? Verse 50. And they all left him. They all left him. And I want you to understand, Mark is leading us to see that. That's who drank the cup, the first Lord's Supper. That's who drank the cup the first Lord's Supper. I love the way one New Testament commentator put it. He writes, the original Lord's Supper is attended by traitors and cowards. It's not a table of merit, but of grace. It's not a table of merit, but of grace. And the grace of Jesus is that he will die. He will pour out his blood for the salvation of traitors and cowards. Salvation of traitors and cowards. That's what the cup pictures. And this cup that Jesus shared with his disciples was, was a cup of wine. Uh, it was very common in those days to have wine with your meal. And it was common because they would take the wine and they would mix it with water. And it acted as a, a purifier for the water that they would drink. So it was common for them to have this wine mixed with water. Sometimes it was 
uh, 20 to 1. Sometimes it was 3 to 1, but that's what they would drink daily to help purify their water. So this cup, what I want you to understand in that is that this cup, just like the bread, was, was common and it was essential to daily life. It was common and it was essential to daily life. But here Jesus takes that which is common and is essential and use it, uses it as a picture of the death that he's going to die. First, the wine picture is his, his bloody death. His bloody death. It's a powerful symbol of the type of death that Jesus will die. As we'll see as we go through chapter 15, the suffering of Jesus will be bloody and brutal. His death is going to be a violent death. But there's more to Jesus' use of this cup cup than just painting a, a graphic image. He says, look at verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. Now, especially to the Jewish ears of his disciples, um, this would have, have resonated. This would have reminded them of a powerful scene from the Old Testament, a powerful scene in the book of Exodus. You don't have to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 24, and I encourage you to maybe jot this reference down and go look at it later on today. But in Exodus chapter four, we, 24, we read about the, ramification, the ratification of the covenant made at Mount Sinai. Now, if you remember, there at Mount Sinai, God entered into a covenant with his people, with the Exodus generation, and he made a promise that he would be their God and they would be his people. He would care for them, he would fight their battles, he would provide for them, and their part of the covenant was to, to obey him, to offer their worship, their loyalty to him. Well, that covenant was ratified in a ceremony recorded for us in Exodus 24, and it's a, it's a rather bloody ceremony. There in Exodus 24, we read about uh, burnt offerings and peace offerings that were sacrificed. And Moses takes the blood of those sacrifices and he takes it and he throws some of it on, onto the altar and onto the, the book of the covenant. He throws it onto that. But then in chapter 8 of, I mean, verse 8 of that chapter, we find out what Moses did with the rest of the blood. He throws some on the altar and some on the book of the covenant, but he takes the rest of the blood and we read in verse 8 of Exodus 24, and Moses took the blood and he threw the rest of it on the people. Imagine that scene. Throwing blood on the people. And he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You see, that blood on the altar, on the book of the covenant, and on the people, it was a sign, a seal of the covenant that was being made between God and his people. And here Jesus says that his blood is just like that. His blood, his death, is a sign, a seal of the new covenant that God is making with his people. Again, Paul and Luke give us more detail than Mark does here. They tell us that Jesus taught his disciples that this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What, what is that? What is the new covenant? I'll give you another reference to jot down. The new covenant is promised in the Old Testament. Promised in the Old Testament and comes to fruition in the New Testament. It's promised in Jeremiah chapter 31 Verses 31 to 34. And let, let me just read that text for you. I'm going to listen to this. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. We read there, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So that covenant at Sinai. My covenant that they broke, he says, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this covenant, this new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, and I will put my law within them. This is the new covenant. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, 
for they shall all know me. There shall be intimacy between God and his people. They shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And that is why Jesus poured out his blood. That's why he died for us. It was the blood of the new covenant. The sign, the seal, that through Christ we were being brought into this glorious, intimate relationship with God. Through Christ, the true and living God, the God of the universe, the God who made everything and sustains everything, is brought into, we're allowed to come into a relationship with him. The true and living God becomes our God. Our God. Through Christ, God forgives all of our sins. All of our sins and remembers them no more. And he does this because of the blood of Christ. He does this because Christ died an atoning death. He, he drank the cup that we all deserve to drink. And by that I mean he drank God's judgment that was due each and every one of us. As we go into chapter 15, we're going to see this so powerfully, so clearly. There, we're going to hear him say, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because he was in our place. We should have been the forsaken. Amen? Because we're the rebels against heaven. But he was forsaken for me. And he was forsaken for you. He suffered for us. And in giving those first disciples, these disciples who will fail him, this cup, he gives them a visible, tangible picture of the reality that he would pay the price for their failure. He'd pay the price for their failure. The cup is a visible, tangible picture that he paid the price for their sin and for ours, and he paid it in full. It's a picture from our Lord that says, I paid it for you. I paid it for you. So you don't have to bear the guilt and the shame anymore. Do we like to beat ourselves up with the guilt and the shame? But the cup says you don't have to bear it anymore. You can stop beating yourself up because he paid it for you. You don't have to worry anymore about how could God ever accept me because you're accepted through the blood of Jesus. Jesus says I paid it all for you so drink the cup. All of you, drink the cup. Drink this reminder, this picture of the forgiveness that I purchased for you. you. Think about that. What a gift from our Lord. What a gift from our Lord to give us this time to gather together around the Lord's table. Visible, tangible picture, repeated, to say, stop beating yourself up. It's paid in full. I paid it for you. What a blessing to gather together around the table and to feed our hearts on the reality that we are completely, truly, fully, and forever forgiven, fully and forever the people of God because of the body and the blood of Jesus. But there's one more aspect of this picture that Mark shows us. It's a picture of a life given for us, a picture of a payment made for us. And this is something I think we lose sight of, but it's also a picture of a future that lay ahead for us. A picture of a future that lay ahead for us. Look at verse 25. Jesus says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You see, the Lord's table, I want you to understand this. The Lord's table is very much like the Passover meal. The Passover looked back 
to the deliverance through the Exodus, and it also looked forward to the coming deliverance through Jesus Christ. And the Lord's table is the same way. The Lord's table looks back upon the salvation earned for us by Jesus Christ, but it also looks forward. It looks forward to that day when Jesus will again drink the fruit of the vine. It looks forward to that day, that great day of celebration, that great banquet, that feast to come in the coronation of the kingdom of God. Are you looking forward to that day? And that's what it looks forward to every time we gather together around the Lord's table. We're looking forward to that time when we get to enjoy the banquet, the great feast with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When we get to enjoy that feast with him in the world as it should be. Are you looking forward to that day? And again, every time we gather together around the Lord's table, it's a reminder of that. Well, that's what we're going to do to close our service this morning. We're going to go to the Lord's table. And again, as we do so, I just want to encourage you to embrace what this table is. And please, and I just, man, I want to drive this home. It is a place for weak and weary sinners to come find strength and encouragement. That's what it is. It's a place for weak and weary sinners to come find strength and encouragement. The only worthiness required of this table, again, we get so freaked out about that at times, you don't want to come in an unworthy manner. The only worthiness required of this table is that you realize how desperately you need what it proclaims. What was going on there in Corinth? They were being flippant about the Lord's table. The only worthiness required is to come as one who desperately needs the truth that it proclaims. Come as one that says, I need the body and the blood of Jesus. I need the life that he lived in my place. I need the death that he died in my place. And so I come, I come with a heart of faith and say, feed me. Feed me through this gospel picture. So I want to encourage you, let the table Pull your focus away from your own efforts. Let it pull your focus away from the efforts of others. Let it pull your focus away from the things of this world. And let it fix your eyes on Jesus. Let it fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus who gave his life. Jesus who paid the price. And Jesus who will one day come again and welcome all of God's children into his glorious kingdom. Brothers and sisters, let's feed our hearts on this gift given us by our Jesus. Ask the men to come forward. Would you pray with me?